Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the Fertility Podcast. You're going to get two of these that I'm making in association with the Fertility Show, which is happening the 1st and the 3rd of November in 2019 in London. And I'm going to be hosting the Let's Talk Fertility Sage and wanted to catch up with some of the people that are going to be speaking at the show to give you an overview of what to expect. You're going to hear two different episodes because there is a lot to be said from the people that I chatted to. First up, you'll hear from Laura Biggs, who is the managing director of the show, about her own story briefly, because I have spoken with Laura before, and I'll put a link to um, more of Laura in the show notes for this episode. You'll also hear from Jonathan Ramsey, who is a urologist, talking about male fertility, something that I'm very passionate to talk about here on the Fertility Podcast. Jonathan is a really fascinating and brilliant urologist, and I went down to his uh, office in Harley Street, a bit echoey, with some very persistent workmen out the back, but nonetheless, I know you'll find what he has to say really interesting. And make sure you listen to the end to get details of the show notes, where I will put all the details of when you can hear Jonathan speak. So I'm now going to welcome Laura Biggs, who's Managing Director of The Fertility Show, as we get ever closer to the London event. And Laura and I were just um, discussing when we last spoke because she was pregnant and it was just before the Manchester event in March 2019, if you're listening in real time. Laura, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. And you're now a mum of a baby. I am. She's six months, actually. <laughs> mum of a six-month-old. Yeah, gone like the wind. It absolutely was blown by. But yeah, I can't quite believe I'm a mum of a six-month-year-old baby and a 14-year-old boy. Well, it's a significant, it's a significant story to share because of the influence of the fertility show on on you, isn't it? Yeah, I absolutely can tell you now that I would not have had my second child if I wasn't involved in the fertility show. I kept going back to the show and to the seminars and speaking to some of the exhibitors about pregnancy for older women. Um, And just to summarise, I'd had significant difficulties getting William, my first child, um, because of endometriosis. And number two just didn't come, uh, despite a couple of rounds of IVF and and a miscarriage. So I'd kind of given up hope of our second child, reluctantly, very reluctantly. And uh, anyone who has tried for a baby at all will know that feeling doesn't ever really go away. So we, we bit the bullet and went for a third and final round, as many people do. This time was different, though. I went with a donor egg. And we travelled abroad for our treatment. And we got our baby. So um, I had a baby at 48, uh, which is, uh, yeah, it's interesting, but amazing and lovely. How, how are your um, energy levels? Um, Yes, <laughs> I, actually, not bad because I'm 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 quite a fit person. Yeah, you are I, in good I, shape. Yeah, I'm. I really tried to be in the best shape as I possibly could be before she arrived. But yes, it is it is relentless, but all worth it. Absolutely. Well, we're going to be talking a little bit more about how all of those decisions have impacted on some of the programming at the fertility show. But before we do, I just want to pick up on what you said about having endometriosis, because in the other episode that we're sharing ahead of this um, year's show, I spoke with Henrietta Norton, who who also dealt with endometriosis and that's what led her to do the work that she's doing and we're talking in October 2019 uh, just over a week ago there was quite a, a, a quite a significant amount of press coverage about endometriosis and a new survey and and conversations about how medical professionals really need to recognize that this is a serious condition that women are dealing with 
Was your experience lengthy before you got a diagnosis? Yeah, I mean, I was diagnosed 16 years ago. So, and at that time, I'd never even heard of it. And actually, I had an amazing doctor. We were trying to work out why I wasn't falling pregnant. And he asked me lots of questions. And he said, I think you've got this. But the only way to tell is a laparoscopy. And I did. And I had it really severely. He said, oh, your period's painful. And I said, well, I don't know, because I don't know what other people's are like. But yes, they are pretty painful. And they had got progressively painful. And actually, just before my surgery, they got really, really bad. But some people don't even know that they've got this condition. or and it, and it is quite a mysterious condition because lots of people, as you rightly say, don't know much about it. And even mm. now, people don't know much about it, 16 years on, and why it causes infertility. And really what I should have been told back then was you're really going to struggle to get pregnant. And I wasn't, I was 34 then, so I wasn't really, really young. Mm. And I should have been told to freeze my eggs then because the likelihood of getting pregnant was, was very difficult. Um, I wish someone had told me that, um, but that's what the fertility show is about. So we can hopefully tell those younger women who are coming into this for the first time that there's things that you should be doing or thinking about to, to treat yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and egg freezing is one of those things. I mean, it's no guarantee, as you know, there's no guarantee that if you thought that egg, it's going to work, but, um, it, it would be good to have some I think from a young if I was younger and I just sort of look, could look back at my younger self that's definitely what I would have done had I known that I was going to have this much trouble getting number two I think that's part of the work that you and I both do is is empowering people to make the decisions and be proactive rather than having to be reactive which is often what happens when you have to walk through a clinic doors isn't it yeah I mean it's when I think back and even though I think like you and I, we know a lot about the subject matter, but there's still so much we don't know mm. or so much that people don't know. And so many different scenarios, it, it, you know, never be afraid to ask lots of questions or read up as much as you can about it. And that's why I really passionately believe the fertility show, if I'd known about it when I was struggling all those years ago, actually it wasn't around that long ago but if if it had been around when I was trying for for William and my second baby I'd have been so much more informed either from the seminars or for speaking to people like you and Jessica and all those amazing people give up their time to come to the event and talk to people it really is you know you don't have to be alone because it is soul destroying yeah especially I remember being in my 30s and all my friends were pregnant all of them and it was so simple and it well, you know what it's like. I'm talking to you and you yeah. know exactly what it's like. When, when everyone you talk to just says, oh, I'm pregnant. <laughs> oh, I'm pregnant. Oh, really? Now, you mentioned Jessica. Jessica is bringing Fertility Fest again to the show. And you mentioned the Let's Talk stage, which I'm hosting. And then there's the seminars. And there's three different ways to basically consume information at the show. And what I love about what you've been creating is kind of catering for everybody. If you want to just wander around and look at the exhibition side of the, the show you can if you want to sit and listen to an expert you can if you want to then go and participate maybe in a conversation in a more panel chatty way you can with both the let's talk and the fertility fest areas now let's just talk a bit about the friday night opening because I know that with it being a weekend in London, sometimes people don't want to come at the weekend. And it was quite a conscious move to open it on the Friday evening, wasn't it? Yeah, quite brave, I think. But I hope it works because I think, I mean, the fertility show 
it's not a great day out, is it? You'll go home in It's not quite like You're... Spirit of Christmas, which you normally walk it's... past on the way to it. <laughs> it's next door, so pop in there to get, your... <laughs> get yourself back Get your baubles. Right it, it is really... I remember the first time I walked into the fertility show and I cried actually because it's full of men and women, um, young men and women who are obviously all looking for the same thing. And it's the thing that should become, be the most natural thing in the world. And for some people it's not, it's devastatingly the hardest thing in the world. And everyone was walking around in silence and everyone was looking, walking around and kind of, you know, not looking at each other. And I think, well, look, we're all in the same boat here. We've all got one thing in common. Mm. We're trying to have a baby or whether you're single sex and you're looking for, you know, a solution for that end or you're a couple and you've tried, you're trying desperately to get that baby. And so that's why we started to introduce the, the, the different kind of seminars. And the Friday night really is, I work with a, an office full of young women and they all start, oh, oh well, should I get my fertility checked out? And oh, should I start worrying? So it's a kind of event for that. So come along after work and just, you know, talk to the doctors to see what they've got to say about getting your fertility MOT. is no bad thing to do if you're, you're thinking about having a baby. But also, if you just don't want to travel back into town at the weekend, if you work in town all weekend, you just don't want to do that trip again into London, then it's a perfect time to pop in after work. There's some great seminars on. Um, all the exhibitors are there. So you can come along for a couple of hours and really get a lot of information. And, you know, you might decide, actually, there's so much going on that you're going to come back with your partner or your friend or your mum at the weekend and, and pick up some more information. Now, you mentioned kind of younger women, but I think it's also worth highlighting that there is an emphasis on solo motherhood and that if you are an older woman and you are enjoying your career and you maybe haven't met your partner maybe you don't feel that having a partner is part of your plan to have a baby but you're just not sure on the steps and that is another big part of the conversation that's going to be going on isn't it yeah in fact you're interviewing my nanny um and she's yes. she's interesting <laughs> because she's she won't mind me saying this she's 38 and when I interviewed her when I was pregnant with Isabella actually she was very upfront with me to say I want to have a baby um, I said oh and, and we, we got talking and she's a single lady and by choice uh, she just hasn't found Mr Wright and has decided that she's going to have a baby on her own and she's planning it and she's getting her life set up for it and she's going to come and talk to you because I think it's fascinating that she works with children um, as her career and that she's deciding to do this journey on her own and, and become a single mother. And she's coming to the fertility show to work out, also come talk to people to, you know, to understand why she's making these decisions and, um, and what her next step will be. But to, to find out the process that she would need to go through because she's planning it. You know, she's saying before I'm 40, I'm going to have a baby. Brilliant. And it's that proactivity that you can really get your teeth into, really, with all these different things under one roof to have an idea in your head, a kind of plan of what you want to find out. Because there is a lot of information there, but I think it's fair to say that it's not quiet when you walk in anymore, is it? Your, your involvement no. in the show has definitely injected a good amount of um, background noise. And there's even laughter, isn't there? I know. And there should be, because, mm. you know, if we can't, make friendships or bonds at the show and feel actually I'm walking into somewhere that's warm and welcoming and understanding and actually yeah we're going to have a little bit of fun there so it, it doesn't have to be this place where we just put our heads down and don't look at each other because we're you know embarrassed about why we're there we're all there for the same reason 
There are tons of people there to help you. Um, there's some loads of friendly faces, people who've been through it. I think Jessica's incredible because she comes along and she talks to say, you know, it doesn't always work and it's mm. okay. It's okay. You know, she's incredible. What she's achieving and what she's going on to do amazes me. Um, and, I, and I love having her at the show because I do think you have to hear every side of the story because sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and we've got to talk about that too. Um, and how does that feel and how do you move on from that? I think we, we're a really realistic show that come along and you will get, uh, I don't, you know, there's so much information, intelligence there and experience and emotional support. Everything is there, but it can be overwhelming. And as you say, make a plan, have a look on the website before you come along, tick the seminars you'd like to go and see. They are available on the day as well. And have a look at the Let's Talk programme because yours, you, you've put together a brilliant programme. So yeah, that's well, one not to miss. I think, as we said at the start, there's so much to still talk about with this topic. And these different ways of talking about it is, is only how we can do it justice because I think it needs to be lectured in some respects because there's the science bit obviously there's the emotional bit that, that fertility fest encapsulates brilliantly and then there's everything in between that we kind of try to cover in the let's talk and and encourage you to come and ask questions and I think one thing is that there aren't any silly questions when you're in this space when you're dealing with this issue you just need to keep asking so that you can get maybe a bit of peace of mind at the end of the day yeah and don't and don't don't feel worried about that it's and if 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 the person here in the panel doesn't know the answer, there's certainly someone in that show that does. Yeah. And they'll they'll go and find them. Uh, so it is as you say, nothing is a silly question there. And you know, don't be as embarrassed to ask. Or if you if you don't want to put your hand up and ask, if you just don't feel comfortable, just ask the host and um, write it down, and we'll ask it at the next seminar, or we'll find the answer for you. Come along and see. Any last bit of advice for somebody maybe still on the fence? Because going to somewhere like Kensington Olympia, which is in essence an exhibition space, when you're trying to understand more about your fertility. It can just seem so overwhelming and I didn't go when I was trying. I didn't actually know about it. If you're still on the fence, what would you say, Laura? I'd say just come along. Even if you're thinking, I don't know if I want to have fertility treatment or I don't know if I'm going to think about an egg donor or a sperm donor or I just don't know. No one's going to make your decision there and then. And I would absolutely 100% recommend that you don't make your decision there and then that you go home and have to think about things and really I mean it's for me it is having Isabella and going through the treatment that I went through and having an egg donor by having Isabella and getting her and she is amazing and I think about that incredible person who donated her egg to me my gosh that is such a big thing and it's such a big amazing thing but if you think too much about it sometimes you can talk yourself out of these things and I think you've just got to you know make your own decision but think about it but not overthink and not over analyze come along to the show hear what people have got to say take it away and then consider your options but at least you'll be a little bit more informed I guarantee that you'll be more informed and you'll be more empowered by leaving that show um, if you come along because I think, as you've just so beautifully described, knowing that somebody else has probably walked the path ahead of you and is, has already felt and dealt with a lot of the feelings and emotions that you 
might be trying to process that's that's something money can't buy really it's so priceless that you can be in a space with people that really do get you and as, as Laura just said I mean I haven't even touched on the the side of your story of having to get your head around a donor but it is something I've talked about in the podcast before and because that is a, a big thing and that's that's another amazing thing about the show is you can find out what support is there for you with all of these different decisions because we've got fertility network uk who are there as well as all sorts of other organizations and i think knowing who is there to hold your hand is really important as well yeah and i would say if you do come along fertility network are a great place to start actually or finish because they will give you impartial advice and will just steer you in a in a direction they won't they're not there to sell you anything they have not got an agenda they um, are an amazing charity that that help people in our situations they're at the show and they are great ladies that work on there and, and the majority of them if not all of them have all had some fertility journey that they have experienced of, of if they de- if they haven't had what you want to talk to them about then they would definitely know somebody who is a good person to go and talk to so it's very nice to be here with you again Jonathan if you remember last time I brought my husband and you very kindly examined him which was the first time anybody had done that and that was two years after we'd had successful ICSI and a few things that I remember really vividly was how you explained, and it's something that I've talked about ever since, this issue about men being fast-tracked to ICSI without more initial investigation happening. And that's something that we can't talk enough about, is it? We need to get that point across. So we spoke probably about two years ago. Have you seen any change in the practices? Yes, I have, Natalie, I'm pleased to say. And incidentally, it's very nice to be talking to you again two years on. So I think in the two years since we last spoke, it is more commonplace, more frequent, for men to seek some advice, uh, to question their situation a little bit more, and to wonder whether any further investigations or treatment may be possible. Of course, it's not just the men. But as we know, it's their partners and wives who are becoming, both the men and the women, much more knowledgeable about the whole situation. And even in the last year, I've been seeing one or two couples who have not yet started the journey towards ICSI and IVF. Which is great. Yeah, and I think that is particularly gratifying. I think this is happening largely because of increased knowledge from our patients and from those who are suffering uh, with subfertility, a delay to natural conception. And they can access more information and can talk to other uh, people. And I think that social media really has helped. And we mustn't forget my colleagues in the medical profession because certainly the uptake of more um, sophisticated investigations, particularly DNA fragmentation, the uptake of these tests in fertility units is beginning to become more widespread. 
um, I hesitate to say widespread, but nonetheless, even if three or four clinics are beginning to do this, then this inevitably begins to indicate possibly a more significant male factor problem than might have been evident on the semen analysis. This, of course, is particularly true when the infertility is said to be unexplained. Because, of course, a man can have a normal semen analysis, but a failure of natural conception and, indeed, a failure of IVF. But then a second-line investigation, as they are known as, that is the DNA fragmentation, may actually e explain what was, up until now, unexplained. Of course, we have to go further because we have to find an explanation for the explanation. So here's a man with a normal semen analysis, a delay in natural conception, possibly failed IVF, and his semen analysis is still normal. And he may well have done all of the useful lifestyle things, but when investigated by this second-line investigation, this DNA fragmentation, that is found to reveal that whilst the sperm might look normal, whilst they might be swimming normally, that's what we call progressive motility, then nonetheless the DNA that they are carrying may be fragmented, it may not be of such good quality. Now that may explain the couple's subfertility or infertility, but then we have to go further to try to explain the reason for the poor DNA integrity. And so all patients, all men, must be examined to see whether they have a varicocele. One must take a careful history to see whether they have ever had anything that might suggest an infection of the urinary system of the genital tract. And one must also inquire, I think, more diligently than many people do about the lifestyle, because people tend to forget that seemingly innocuous drugs, possibly those used for hair restoration, uh, possibly proteins taken in the gym which may have some steroids in them, people sort of forget that these substances could have a bearing on their fertility. And so a careful history is important, a careful physical examination, and as I mentioned, in the physical examination, one can pick up very useful clues, but perhaps the most important thing, and here's another change in the last two years, is that I think the urological profession and indeed the fertility specialists are beginning to re-recognise varicocele, which is a collection of veins usually around the left testicle but sometimes around both, a collection of veins which will warm up the scrotum and the testicle and therefore may create adverse circumstances for sperm production and of course the maturation of that sperm. Now this business of varicocele is something that myself and colleagues in London have addressed this year and in fact have published 
I think, quite an important paper, suggesting that the guidelines uh, at the moment in this country, which are developed by the NICE committee, that those guidelines which currently imply that varicocele has no adverse effect. We have suggested in this paper that those guidelines should be revisited. This really isn't something new, because of course before there was IVF and particularly ICSI, most urologists would treat varicoceles. And this uh, really is quite straightforward, and if one stands back from it, and one looks at the biology of sperm production, and indeed the anatomy of the man, the fact that the testicles live effectively outside the body in a little uh, skin sac called the scrotum means that the temperature outside the body in that scrotal sac is two or three degrees centigrade below the core temperature uh, inside the, the abdomen. And therefore, if there are some distended veins that are dependent, then the blood is much warmer because it flows from the warmest place in the body, which is inside the abdomen, back into the scrotum and thus may warm the scrotal sac and therefore the testicle and therefore the sperm by more than two or three degrees. So it comes as no surprise that varicocele probably is significant. And indeed, if one looks at the developing guidelines for the treatment of male fertility, both in Europe uh, and in North America, already those guidelines do embrace the treatment of varicocele, particularly when these second-line investigations, like DNA fragmentation, are abnormal. So we would hope that a man who has a story of uh, delayed natural conception or failed IVF with uh, a semen analysis that may be near normal or possibly subnormal, who has a large varicocele, would benefit from the treatment of that varicocele to reduce the temperature in the scrotum and thus to improve both sperm production and sperm quality. And of course, now that we have second-line investigations, particularly the DNA fragmentation, we can measure that uh, fragmentation index, as it is called, both before and after a varicocele treatment. And we can therefore define for the first time in numbers that our treatment has succeeded. Now, of course, when we talk about the last two years and more investigations and more male factor treatments and more awareness, we still have a wave of disbelief from many of our colleagues in specialist fertility units because they look at their results over the last 25 years and they say, oh, well, our overall results, when we relate the numbers of babies born to the man's semen analysis, do not seem to correlate exactly. So as far as we are concerned, the doctors in the fertility unit will say, 
it doesn't really matter what the man-semen analysis is because we get the same results overall, as long as we have some motile sperm. Well, of course, the potential fallacy of that statement, which of course is true, is that if, as has happened for the last 25 years, all the men who have abnormal semen analyses or even normal semen analyses have been in fertility units, merely having repeated cycles of treatment, whether it be IVF or ICSI, then they have not been available to study. So in fact, although it is a true statement that it doesn't seem to make much difference, we have never looked to see if we could make a difference, because the men have not been available for examination, investigation and treatment before they have a cycle. We of course are seeing many more patients, couples, who sadly have failed cycles of treatment and we have investigated them, often finding with these second line investigations a raised DNA fragmentation index. But we're a little bit up against it by that time because of course by the time the couples have had two or three and sometimes five or six treatments then time is passing and their ages are against them. So therefore it is more difficult for urologists who are trying to make a difference to measure that difference in terms of live births. Because of course if the lady, the female partner is now 38, 39 or even older, to make that difference so that the seventh cycle actually is rewarded with a live birth is beginning to be, in any case, very difficult, whatever we may have done to improve the man. So I'm very hopeful that as time passes, the men will present to us earlier mm. in their treatment journey, uh, possibly before they even have a cycle of uh, IVF so that they can have these second-line investigations, and certainly if the outcome of the first cycle of treatment whether that be IVF or ICSI, is not as one might expect. Because we're beginning to understand that, of course, we often have a problem shared. There may be some undetectable problem with the eggs. But when we get fewer blastocysts, those are five-day embryos, than perhaps we might expect for the age of the couple, then it may well be that at that stage we should be looking more closely uh, at the uh, more sophisticated tests of sperm quality. With this second line of investigation and there being so many couples that are given the subfertility diagnosis, is it too simplistic to say that if there's a first failed cycle, then before the second cycle, why can't the man have this second line? Is that too simplistic? No, I don't think it's too simplistic, Natalie. I think you make a very good point. But I would add one extra bit of information that we can derive from that first failed cycle, and that is the statistics within the cycle. For example, if we got a good number for the lady's age of mature eggs, and the timing of the egg collection was right, and if there was then a good fertilisation rate, 
and a good proportion of five-day blastocysts, yet there was no pregnancy, no live birth, then one could argue that the cycle was as good as it could be, and that perhaps, therefore, this was just as is often quoted in fertility in its bad luck. Um, my personal view is that the time for further male investigation is the time that it first occurs to the couple that there may be a problem. But I do take the point that within the fertility unit, if everything seems to have gone well, and we do have a lot of blastocysts, then one might say, oh, well, it's just a matter of time, let's give it another cycle. Um, but particularly when, as I mentioned earlier, there are fewer blastocysts than we would expect, when there are really only uh, brief chemical pregnancies, or indeed when after a fresh transfer and possibly a couple of frozen transfers, there have been early miscarriages. These features do begin to point more strongly to a male factor, uh, and at that stage, of course, an undetected male factor. What, of course, you may be asking is, should all men have second-line investigations before they even start? I think we're quite a long way away from that. Mm -hmm. um, there is no reason why they shouldn't, as we apply the same principle to other areas of medicine. But, of course, this will require a, a big change in our policy, because at the moment, the national policy is to look at semen analyses, to do as much as one can in the laboratory to help the process of fertilization. But there is nothing in the envelope, in the guideline, in the funding to allow further male factor investigation. So I think it's important that we think about changing our whole approach to allow this earlier investigation. And I know one thing that you're passionate about, one of the many things that you're passionate about, is the research. And you mentioned other countries. And I know that there's some research that you are involved with that needs more men to, to get involved. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, there was one study um, that I'd, I'd looked at, which was IVI's study. Um, they looked at the total motile sperm count trend across time, which showed there'd been a decrease um, in the motile sperm. So there was 12.4%, sorry, an increase in the number of men needing treatment as a result of their motile sperm count. So it had gone from 12.4% in 2004 to 21.3% in 2017, because we talked about that impact on sperm health, ultimately. And when we're talking about trying to help men earlier, we really need to get this message across about the lifestyle and environmental impacts, don't we? That men listening and wanting to understand more really need to get their head around. And you hinted at things like they might not realise with for their appearance or in the gym. Um, but do you think that men really still understand the impact on their sperm health from the lifestyle choices they might be making? No, I, I think that's a very good question and it's a subject that needs to be explored. It needs to be explored by doctors, by healthcare providers, 
and possibly even by nations, because this issue of declining sperm counts, declining male fertility, which must be related to environmental factors, to lifestyle factors, to uh, obesity, because if you draw a graph of rising obesity in young males, then it parallels those figures that you've just quoted about reduction in sperm counts. And I think that young men are not aware in their 20s uh, of the potential damage they may be doing to their future fertility. We have to remember that uh, many men of that age are most concerned with not having babies mm. and therefore to concentrate on the fact that they may not be able to procreate in the future is something far from their consciousness. But if we look at uh, the, na the nation's health, then to consider male fertility in young men would, of course, be an extremely sensible proposition because all the features of the lifestyle features which are bad for health in general are not surprisingly bad for sperm. I think one of the most worrying features that has developed in my practice over the last couple of years since we spoke are the number of men I see who have abused anabolic steroids. Mm. The Office of National Statistics reported last year that anabolic steroid abuse in all men, so this may be older men and younger men, represented an alarming 6% of the male population. And I don't think that young men realise that the price of building their muscle bulk, paradoxically, to make themselves more attractive, that the effect of this paradoxically is inevitably to make them infertile, and sometimes that infertility, that reduction in sperm production, may be irreversible. So the use of these anabolic steroids, which is widespread, is something that I am quite sure should be brought to the attention uh, of your listeners, of everybody. And the worst case, of course, is after long-term anabolic steroid abuse, as I hinted, we have an irreversible situation, and one that is very difficult to treat, because these men have reset their hormonal clock, their hormonal balance, such that they require very high levels of testosterone actually to feel normal. So this is a form, I would suggest, of addiction. Mm. Uh, and I feel very, very sorry for some of these men who've uh, fortunately managed to help some of them, but I cannot stress too strongly that some may be beyond help. I know you've got some research running. Is it still ongoing and are you still needing men? So we've got some research again looking at some of these second-line tests mm. that I mentioned and the rela possible relationship between DNA quality of sperm, the levels of oxidising substances in the seminal fluid, and the possibility that these two features that is oxidation and poor sperm DNA quality 
may relate to a collection of microorganisms existing in the genital tract of men. So that's the tract that is common to sperm production and the passage of urine. And we're beginning to develop the notion that men may have a microbiome in that part of the body, just as we know we have in our gut, and just as women have in their vaginas, and maybe in their uteruses. So it would be common sense to imagine that these microbiomes, or to use the Latin plural, the microbiomata, are common to both men and women. And when they become imbalanced, this might impose further oxidative stress on the sperm and reduce its quality. And of course, we know that the composition of the microbiome in the gut is very much influenced by lifestyle issues and poor diet and obesity, diabetes. So there is a triangulation, there is um, a, a coming together of these lifestyle features as they relate to the health of the young man and to the health and quality of his sperm. A lot of fascinating information from Jonathan Ramsey there and you'll get to see him at The Fertility Show. All the details are in the show notes, which are The Fertility Show London 2019. Go and have a look to get the details of when Jonathan is talking. You can buy tickets at thefertilityshow.co.uk for all the seminars and uh, obviously your tickets for the show itself. And be sure to listen to my next episode next Wednesday.